0: And try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Val Miftikoff, founder and CEO of Zero Avia. Zero Avia enables zero emissions air travel at scale, starting with 500 mile short haul trips at half of today's cost. They have a novel zero emission powertrain that has 75% lower fuel and maintenance costs, resulting in up to 50% total trip cost reduction. They also just raised a 24.3 million round in funding, led by Hong Kong based venture capital firm Horizons Ventures, who is an existing investor and joined by new investor British Airways. Other investors include Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Ecosystem Integrity Fund, Summa Equity, Shell Ventures, and System IQ. And the company's raised a total of 53 million in private investment and 74 million in total funding since its formation. Now, We have a great discussion in this episode about decarbonizing aviation, why it matters, why it's so hard, where we are in trying to get there, what the different solutions are, why hydrogen is such a compelling one, zero obvious angle, their approach from day zero, some of their progress to date, what's coming next, their long vision. And also we have a fascinating discussion about what some of the other key things are that need to be solved that are outside of zero obvious control to make this happen. We talk about some competing offerings as well, and some of the trade-offs and pros and cons of the different approaches. At any rate, I learned a ton in this one, and I hope you do as well. Val, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Thanks, Jason.
0: Well, thanks for coming, especially uh, the big funding news happened yesterday, and yesterday being March 31st, since we don't publish these exactly on the date of recording. But uh, I would imagine that your inbox is pretty full, and you're probably a pretty busy guy right now
1: a little bit. And we tried to time the press release so it's not hitting, you know, April Fool's Day, because otherwise you'd have to do another press release Why it's not an April Fool's joke. Seriously, this was great work by the team and by our CFO as well to get all this together. And it came on the heels of the previous round that we did just in November. And I think it's reflective of the amount of energy that, I guess, Pun intended. Um, uh, in the- I was going to make that
0: joke, but I, I thought it was a dad joke, so I restrained. But you, you went right after it.
1: Yeah. In this in space, <laughs> people are very excited about what we do. People are excited about the clean aviation movements. We of course think that we have a big part of the story.
0: Well, maybe that's a good segue. What do you do?
1: Zero Avia is about three and a half years old. We build zero emission uh, hydrogen electric power plants or engines for commercial aviation. We are targeting large vehicle, relatively large vehicles, starting with 10 to 20 seat aircraft, fixed wing, commercial service, cargo, and passenger. And then what this round is about that we just announced, is also entering the next size of the power plant and next size of uh, aircraft, uh, standard uh, full-size regional turboprops or regional aircraft, 50 to 70 seat generally in size. So for those larger vehicles or long distances or relatively long distances, hundreds of miles that they fly on their trips, we believe that the only credible alternative to fossil fuel or to turbine engines is really hydrogen electric approach, which is hydrogen as primary storage, hydrogen fuel cell to convert hydrogen to electricity, and then electric motors to drive the propeller or a fan or pick your favorite propulsor. So that's what we do.
0: How did you come to do this work? Did you grow up hoping and wishing that you would decarbonize aviation as a grown-up?
1: Yeah, not quite like that. I, I grew up in Siberia. So back in the day, that was not a big issue, as you can imagine, especially in the Soviet Union. But as I came over to the U.S. about 25 years ago and then started going in the energy world and just on the management consulting that I did across the various topics, this sustainability became quite a bit of my personal passion. And my previous company actually before Zero Avia was already in the zero emission transportation space. Electric Motorworks. We built the world's most sophisticated and largest network of smart charging systems that would allow us to manage charging of electric vehicles, electric cars, to the grid conditions and allow us to integrate more and more renewable power into the grid by utilizing the batteries in the cars. So I started that company around 10 years ago. And then uh, about four years ago, it was acquired. And that's, that's when I started Zero Ivy. And I'm uh, a pilot myself. So that's other side of the personal passion. Flying since 2006, give or take. First got my helicopter license and then the uh, fixed wing license. So this is a personal passion as well. So I want to see aviation do good.
0: And when you exited your last company and then you started thinking about What's next? I know you mentioned that you're personally passionate about this area, but this is a new area as it relates to decarbonization and putting it front and center for your professional focus. So, What's the origin story of the company? Where did you start and what was the first step that you took that started the dominoes in motion?
1: As I mentioned, right, so a pilot for the last 15 years and then uh, you know started the zero emission transportation company 10 years ago. I moved all my ground transport to electric pretty much. And our energy supplied home is all solar. So we have solar city, two systems on our roof. We drive two electric cars and I'm now on my, I think, fourth electric car. At the same time, when I go to the airport and get into a helicopter or airplane, we burn fossil fuel and it just felt out of balance. And then when you look at the broader picture in the industry, you see that aviation is becoming really quickly becoming a major source of human driven climate impact. Now it's maybe five to ten percent off the total if you count you know CO two sources and non-CO two sources. A lot of time people just don't count the non-CO two parts, but they're at least as impactful as the carbon emissions. So with those five to ten percent, not huge, but already sizable. But if you look at all the other industries, right, including electric vehicles on the ground, where I was part of over last years, that whole thing is moving electric, right? Electric cars, electric trucks, all that. Then you look at the power sector, everything's moving renewable, is great. Even heavy industry already moving to more and more sustainable. But for aviation, we just don't have solutions. Nobody knows what to do. In fact, the only, the only thing people know how to do is sustainable aviation fuels, liquid fuels, substitution of fossil fuel, biofuels, or synthetics. But those have their own issues and they cover care only of that carbon part of the equation, but not the other side of it. So they're at best can address only 50% of the problem. So we really thought that we as an industry need radical propulsion solutions and out of those, it was clear to us that hydrogen electric is the best option.
0: And as someone that has electrified so many other aspects of their life and and knowing that there are companies that are trying to electrify aviation, what is your view on the viability of that path and maybe some of the trade-offs to consider?
1: Early on we, we looked at a number of things and, and of course batteries were in scope as well. And if anything, being where I'm coming from, from electric car side and spending time on uh, figuring out how to charge, discharge those batteries, working with automakers. We had a number of automakers who worked with and understood their trajectory for the battery technology and battery development. If anything, I had a bias towards batteries coming into this, but it was relatively clear relatively quickly that for commercial market for commercial aviation, which is larger vehicles, longer distances. It's just too much of a gap between what we have today and what is credible today in terms of weight of the batteries or specific energy, watt hours per kilogram main metric and what's needed. What I usually find instructive to talk to people about is you have jet fuel, for example, this is 12 kilowatt hours per kilogram chemical energy density. And then you take the best battery systems of today that are in production, and those are at best 200, 250 watt hours per kilo which is 50x difference compared to jet fuel. Now, of course, you can talk about the efficiency of conversion of jet fuel to electricity and all that, but you, you you have 50x difference to start with. And then hydrogen, on the other end, is three times higher energy density than jet fuel on a per kilogram basis. So you have 50x lower, three times higher, 150x total difference between the batteries and hydrogen. So that's what you start with. And these two orders of magnitude of difference basically drive the selection, right? So our thesis is that for small vehicles, maybe low utilization use, short distance batteries will have its place, yeah? And everything else will be based on hydrogen. And in the hydrogen domain, there are two ways that we'll see people do things. One is hydrogen electric, which is what we do, where effectively generate electricity and then electric motors rotate the prop and combustion, which could be hydrogen combustion or synthetic fuel combustion. And over time, I think the combustion part will also move to hydrogen there as well. So we think you know, hydrogen is really the future of commercial aviation and people like Airbus already agree. Last year, you might have seen a lot of announcements about Airbus doing new types of vehicles in the next 10, 15 years that are all focusing on hydrogen. So it's, the last year was actually great for us and for Hydrogen aviation.
0: If you look at there's there's short haul, there's there's long haul, there's small planes, there's big planes, there's passenger planes, there's cargo planes, and I'm I'm sure I'm missing some categorizations here, but out of the things that I just laid out, where are you focused with Zeroavia.
1: All commercial traffic, the larger the better. So our first commercial launch is in about three years, and that will be small turbine replacements, nominally 600 kilowatt uh, shaft power engines. Those engines typically go into 10 to 20 seat aircraft, fixed wings or airplanes. And there are about 10,000 of those commercially used worldwide. That's our initial segment. And typically those go for maybe a couple of hundred miles on a trip, less than an hour in length, and typical regional, sub-regional travel. A lot of those are used in uh, you know, island nations and so forth. And then there is also a cargo element of that. So like, for example, FedEx is running the largest fleet of small planes out there for a single operator. I believe it's over 300 small planes that they use for sort of last, say, 100 miles of service in a lot of places, uh, Cessna caravans and upcoming Cessna Sky Couriers, the 19-seat the format. And then we just announced, actually, the kickoff of the next size power plant, which will go into larger aircraft, 50 to 70-seat, targeting probably 500-plus miles of range. So that's what that's what we are going after. We're going after the bread and butter of commercial aviation. And within 10 years, we're hoping to get to a point when we can start replacing some of the single aisle, the most prevalent type of aircraft out there with some zero emission options.
0: And can you talk a bit about the timelines here in terms of when you got started? where you are today, and then you mentioned that that three-year milestone, for example, but just as you look into the future, maybe some of the key stages and phases that are in store?
1: So it started, give or take, about three years ago. We had some ground tests. So first, we formative months of the company looking at how we want to do things, doing some design, so all that. Then we started working on hardware. We had some ground tests, uh, initial ground tests in 2018. Then we had our first flights in a six-seat prototype in 2019, first in the U.S., Then we got a lot of attention and interest from the UK government, won some grants there, set up operation in the UK. And uh, last year we built the second prototype, a six seat prototype in the UK with a new version of our power plants. We have flown it a number of stages uh, of our flight testing program in the UK last year, getting uh, ready for the last stage of that program now with some long distance flying that we're going to demonstrate pretty soon here. And also last quarter, around December, we have kicked off the next program, which is now a commercial intent power plant, 600 kilowatt power plant that would go into this 10 to 20 seat aircraft. That's what was funded through private public uh, arrangements with $22 million coming in from the private sources and Amazon and Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Shell and Horizons, and, and a few others came in. And,
0: United Airlines, right? Uh,
1: not, not United. British Airways this time. Yeah, British Airways, we did the uh, initial partnership back in the last quarter, uh, last year. Now they've joined as officially as an, as an investor into the company. So um, a really good partnership there. But we had a 22 million private, 17 million government money coming in to fund the uh, 600 kilowatt program. And that's what we kicked off in December. So the next milestone for the company is a first flight of that vehicle, of that power plant, a first version in a 19 seat vehicle later this year hopefully. And then, of course, go from there to qualification of the design for the certifiability. And we then go for certification and hope to get the product uh, to the market in flying commercial aircraft in about three years. With the larger engine systems that we are just kicking off, and that's what this, uh, this round that was announced just yesterday is about, we're looking at 1.6 megawatt nominally per shaft. That's the type of the power that powers these 50 to 70 seat aircraft. And we're looking to uh, market entry in about five years on those.
0: And when you think about building these kinds of businesses that are bread and butter for what powers our global economy, but also so risky and so capital intensive, do you have a bias in the earliest days in terms of the right sources of capital as an entrepreneur? Uh,
1: It's it's an interesting question. Uh, So the answer is yes. You want to match your business backers to uh, the challenge at hand. And that's why you see the, the people who you see in our uh, investor list that we wanted to uh, make sure that from the very early on, right, the first large institutional round that we our sizable institutional round that we did, we we're already bringing in folks that uh, can look at them and you, you can see how they can support the company throughout the journey with the capital availability and uh, and the appetite for hard problems like Breakthrough Energy Ventures, for example. They're working on some of the hardest problems that exist in the world on the sustainability agenda. And aviation is definitely, you know, it's a pretty hard problem. It is the hardest problem, arguably, in transportation, maybe even across the sectors, just because of the energy intensity. And that's exactly the types of problems that these guys are excited about. So we really wanted to bring them in as an investor and we found a match there so we're really grateful to Breakthrough Energy Ventures and uh, Amazon Climate Pledge Fund with the same sort of focus on hard problems and and our other investors uh, are also all handpicked specifically uh, for that so the answer is yes.
0: And if you step outside of Zero Avia and you just look at hydrogen powered aviation and you want it to exist and you want to get there as quickly and efficiently as possible. So you've got these power plants that ZeroAvi is working on. What are the other key things that need to be solved to complete the package and make this hydrogen powered aviation viable?
1: Well, the biggest one is probably a fuel supply. This is a new fuel. So you need to tell the operators, you know, where that's going to come from. That's the first question after you deal with the standards sort of, okay, when when's the certification, how you guys think about safety and all those things. That's partially why we're also playing a role there. So what we want to do, in addition to building the technology around the power plants, we want from the business model perspective and from project management, if you will, perspective also control the fuel supply to these operators. Our vision is that as hydrogen aviation gets adopted, there will be a lot of opportunity to uh, generate fuel, hydrogen fuel on site at the airports. So that's what we already are doing for our own testing we have built the world's first hydrogen production and refueling facility over uh, at our R&D site in the uk i believe it's world's first uh, that generates hydrogen on site at the airport and refuels the planes with the fueling truck that can run around the airport roadside airside it's of course small size uh, small scale but uh, we're making our own fuel and we think that that's the blueprint for the future And that's also why we wanted to bring somebody like Shell to our investor base as well, which of course they are, and participate in both rounds uh, so far, where they have a huge presence in aviation. They're one of the largest suppliers of aviation fuels today. They have relationships with a lot of airports, and we believe that, you know, that fueling side of the story is super important. And we want to, when we go to people like British Airways, we want to say, not only we, we know how to power your planes, we also help you get the fuel into those planes in partnerships like this with Shell. In the
0: way that there are some competing approaches on the power plant side, are there also competing approaches as it relates to the fuel supply? For example, does every approach entail producing the hydrogen on site or are there alternate approaches that are potentially viable?
1: Yeah, there are alternate approaches and some of the startups um, out there uh, also uh, working on them. We think that at large scale, and you get to large scale pretty quickly with aviation. If you look at the numbers for any reasonably sized commercial airports, what kind of fuel requirements they have, there are some airports out there that have billions of gallons per year in fuel utilization. And even long before those scales, it starts making a lot of sense to uh, have production right on site. Right, And with hydrogen, if you can, you want to avoid transport of that fuel. It's great on the energy density per kilo, but it's not awesome in energy density per unit volume, which for aircraft itself, carrying fuel on board is not as catastrophic as it is for overground transport in a vehicle. like For example, you can have a huge truck, right? a semi-truck that normally is rated for 80,000 pounds, but it would carry only 3,000 pounds of hydrogen because of the volume constraints. And that makes transportation of that fuel quite expensive. And typically, that's what kills a lot of the economics of the centralized hydrogen production and then distribution into all these small uh, fueling locations on the ground. And that's part of the reason why hydrogen is so expensive for cars.
0: So you mentioned fuel supply as one of the key things that needs to get figured out. What are some other key things that need to be figured out that are outside of the scope of uh, Zero Avia's focus?
1: To some extent, this is outside, it's kind of on the border of the scope, but uh, we, of course, will be involved in that quite a bit, which is, so you get these engines out there and they start flying and uh, obviously, you know, the maintenance needs to occur and the serviceability needs to be there. There are already huge networks of MROs out there, maintenance repair organizations that serve today's fleets and we'll need to make sure that all of those networks are uh, educated, equipped and prepared to also serve this new type uh, of power plants. And uh, of course, we'll be quite involved in the beginning, but we can't over time just control that part of the equation. And so we need that part of the ecosystem start coming over. And we have some strategies on how we actually enable that and bring them along.
0: Now, in order for this to happen, is there a retrofitting solution or would it require all new planes?
1: Retrofitting is one of the primary approaches that we're actually going for. So the objective for our power plant development is to arrive at as much of a drop-in replacement as possible for the existing power plants. Because we realize, especially in the larger sort of commercial area, even in smaller aircraft, takes uh, five to 10 years to bring a new aircraft to market. Which means that if you rely on the clean sheet designs only, then your time to market is basically uh, bottlenecked by that process, especially for uh, larger aircraft. So what we are hoping to do is to create a, a set of engine platforms that can be qualified into existing types of vehicles. And th- that doesn't mean that everything will be retrofit. could be a, uh, what's called forward fit as well. When a company like British Airways, for example, orders uh, another ATR-72 or uh, a, a similar size plane, but it gets equipped with 0 engines from the factory, right? But it's an existing type. So we, do, we don't have to completely redesign the aircraft. Maybe we need to do some modifications to the aircraft. And these are parts of STC, supplemental type certificate, where we don't need to recertify the whole airframe.
0: I'm bouncing around a bit, but you also mentioned that there's a public-private partnership involved here. That's not something that I've typically seen. And again, I'm just learning. So there's a lot of typical things that I probably haven't seen, but in these small high growth companies backed by the the venture capital firms or, or even private equity for that matter. Can you talk a bit about the nature of that relationship and also more generically where you think these public private partnerships might be interesting and valuable for early stage companies or said another way, what types of early stage companies would be good candidates to explore them?
1: It's a little bit correlating to the types of companies that the investors like uh, you know, Breakthrough Energy Ventures and such would be interested in, which are driving transformation in major industries. So for the government, for example, in, in the UK, in this specific case, we have quite a bit of traction, of course. What's important to the government is to ensure the transformational technologies are developed in the UK, utilizing the uh, UK's aviation ecosystem, and uh, the technology is developed uh, within the country for experts outside of the country. They want to see manufacturing capabilities being developed in the country as well. So they have, of course, Rolls-Royce is one of the major engine manufacturers, which is a great uh, engineering success story for uh, the UK aerospace, and they want to see more of that. They also see that, um, the, the transformation is coming in the industry and new propulsion is coming. And they want to attract companies like us to, to their markets and uh, ensure that we have a good path there. So that's what the governments are after. Of course, in Europe, especially, and hopefully now in the United States with a new administration, we are going to see. So in Europe, we already see that, right? A lot of emphasis on sustainability and sustainable technologies. And hopefully in the US, we're going to see that as well.
0: In terms of the path to helping this market to materialize. What are the things that are keeping you up most at night within the purview of your control? And then same question, what are the things that are keeping you up at night outside of your control?
1: The, the biggest one is regulatory side, right, and it's partially in our control, partially outside of our control, right, because it's regulations and interaction with regulatory bodies like FAA, CAA, EASA. The uncertainty there is, that it is the timing uncertainty on these certification timelines. And we think that our timelines are realistic, of course, that we are talking about, and we, we already had a lot of interactions with the regulators in the UK. We're especially close to the regulator there but there is intrinsic uncertainty there it's a new type of power plants never certified before and there is no test book for example there is no means of compliance as they call them that say okay if you have a hydrogen electric engine this is how you test it these are the test criteria this is what you have to pass and then if you pass all the check all these boxes then you have a certified uh, power plant there is nothing like that we have to write it together and that adds some uncertainty in the timelines. And that's really probably the biggest source of uncertainty in our business, because we believe, especially for the first commercial offering for a 600 kilowatt engine, we believe that we got a pretty good handle on the technology side of things. And of course, we're already reasonably credible with uh, having molar version of our power plants in the air with flying prototype, which nobody else can really say. So we got a lot of learnings from that but you know the, the regulatory side is a substantial source of uncertainty. so that's something that I spent a good amount of time on and the team is spending a good amount of time on.
0: What about the appetite and the urgency of the airline industry itself to do things differently? Where are they at and what's your perception there in terms of how serious they are about change and how ripe the fruit is in, in that regard?
1: Uh, I think not everybody, of course, but a lot of the operators out there, especially over in Europe, are on with the program and they see what's coming. And they see, even before the pandemic, we've seen the flight shaming movement over in uh, Northern Europe starting, taking place. Uh, and actually not just people talking, but actual drops in air service because of that. Right? I think Sweden reported that they see up to 10% drop because people are no longer comfortable with emission levels and sustainability problems of flying around. So they opt for rail or, or they opt for not going somewhere that far. And instead vacationing closer to home or whatnot. So it was appreciable impact and it's only getting worse or better. It depends on your point of view, but uh, it's, it's getting more meaningful. Uh, in terms of the impact. And the, especially in Europe, the operators actually see that, and they understand what's in the future and what they need to do. So in Europe, we find that these conversations with the operators land on fertile grounds, so to speak. And we see uh, the US side uh, or North America side also coming around quite a bit, especially in the last uh, you know 12 months.
0: Given that you're a few years in now, and, and you've done a lot in those few years, Looking back, what do you wish existed that didn't exist at the time that would have made your journey easier and relatively and for whatever reason I ask my questions in twos, what do you think we could put in place that doesn't exist today that would foster more of this type of important hard tech innovation?
1: It's a good two part question because the the answer is kind of the same. So it would be great if it existed before and uh, we need more of it even now. And that being balanced focus on sort of disruptive and transformational versus incremental in the solution space. And what I mean by that is, I think especially you know, two, three years ago, there was a lot of incremental focus on things, uh, which would say, hey, you know, we, yeah, we're gonna fight this thing by more efficient airframes and more efficient engines, of the same type, and we're gonna bring this uh, incremental improvements to bear. And then sustainable aviation fuels uh, will help us there, but effectively also utilizing the same type of airframe and power plant technology.
0: And we can plant trees. We can plant trees for the rest.
1: Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and then you run out and then you run out of trees, right? Because everybody <laughs> wants to plant trees and then you know, there is no there's no more land yeah so don't don't get me started on on the on the carbon offsets and all that but uh you know you had a lot of incremental stuff and and, and then slowly this sort of realization comes in that says well even if we are super successful and all of that this is only like a small part of the problem because if you look at the business as usual in aviation and now pandemic notwithstanding right like you know, because we're going to bounce back and all that. Now already, you know, U.S. Uh, air traffic uh, on some routes already to 100%. So we're going to bounce back. And if you abstract from that, from a temporary blip, and you look at the growth rates, worldwide aviation, uh, and you just project it out by 2050 uh, in 30 years, the emissions, even with all those incremental improvements, triple, three, four x. Uh, you know, various assessments uh, vary, but uh, it, it's like at least triple. Clearly, you can't get at 2050. Is everybody wants to like all the countries and everybody except China, I think, which said 2060, which is also close. They want to go net zero. How are you going to go net zero if even with all the incremental improvements? in 30 years, which is, by the way, a lifetime of a single vehicle. So you buy a 737 today, you're going to be retiring it in 30 years as a lessor or airline, if you if you keep it that long. The vehicle lifetime is 30 years. Just in one vehicle lifetime, you need to like go from that to, to zero. And it's like, how are you going to do that without transformative technology? So people started realizing that, but we need more of it. And the ways we need, that to manifest are things like for example and that's what we're working with the UK government and some other officials on as well is dedicated R&D funding for example specifically for transformational approaches yeah so like new types of power plants new types of fuels things like that we need more of that and also parallel to that and that segues to your previous question my answer on the regulatory side we need to empower the regulators to be appropriately situated and staffed to really take on those challenges from the regulatory side of things. Because when we show up, for example, with our technology through the regulator, we need the regulator to have enough bandwidth and, and priority to spend enough time to understand the technology and to react to our proposals so that we can move them at an appropriate pace. And it's you know getting better and better, but we need to do more.
0: And in terms of sources of capital, I mean, you, you talked about the public-private partnership, and you also talked about the BEVs and the and the Amazons of the world that are set up to be with you over the long haul. How do you think about traditional venture capital as an asset class and how much overlap there is between traditional venture capital and this type of deep tech innovation?
1: I would say the investor types that we got and uh, the, the types that are interested in the types of things that we do are a segment of what you would call traditional venture capital. They're just focusing on sustainability, focusing on deep tech problems, uh, as opposed to you know, the next iPhone app, perhaps. But it's a, it's a segment. They, they all have venture capital approaches, meaning that they're in it for uh, outsized returns. They're looking for home runs, 10x, uh, you know, 100x, <laughs> if, they can, if they can swing it, uh, returns, while uh, working on these types of problems. So it's a it's a segment off V C. It's a relatively I would say Maybe small, in ter- definitely in terms of the number of firms, uh, a small segments. In terms of the um, capital committed, it's a larger segment. And more and more people are orienting themselves towards it, which is good, because you see people see their writing on the wall, so to speak, when uh, large investors, like a pension funds and, and so forth, are, are saying that, hey, we're gonna start divesting from fossil fuels, for example, right, from coal and from oil and gas. That sends pretty strong signal to the upstream investors as well, that gives a signal on what's going to be valued in the future. And those that pick up those signals will generate outsized returns. So, so I think this segment will grow.
0: And if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing, it could be a policy thing, it could be a technology breakthrough, it could be anything that would most accelerate your efforts here and the efforts of hydrogen powered aviation, what would you change and how would you change it?
1: I think the most impactful piece that is outside of our control would be a proper market mechanism for sustainability like across multiple sectors across you know global mechanism right because in aviation specifically right it's any any regional mechanism is not super impactful because i think there were stories last year or maybe maybe 2 years ago when some countries try to clamp down on on I think carbon intensity of the aviation fuels people would just you know fly their planes to uh, refuel in another country so in aviation any kind of policy around these things will have to be global because just the vehicles move around the globe uh, every day but that type of global and, and it and it so, so complex that it would probably require a magic wand to actually make it happen uh, from the political standpoint and all that but if we could make it happen, that globally, worldwide, we have a science-driven, meaningful system to price these emission externalities and then feed that into, into various business models, that would be the best help that we could get.
0: But you, it sounds like, have little to no confidence that we will see anything like that in any reasonable time frame.
1: The confidence level is relatively low, although, you know, it's uh, the crisis brings solutions. We, we all wish that it wouldn't come to that. But uh, if, if we really start seeing the extreme impact from climate change uh, as predicted, then I think people will mobilize. And in the interim, some localized activities are already there. Of course, they're less effective than, than global for the initial segments, for example, you know, regional aviation. That could be helpful uh, if, if these things are done at the, let's say, continent level take our airplanes that we are targeting, right? These are all sort of sub 1000 miles for the next seven, 10 years. So they don't cross oceans. So something that is done, let's say in continental Europe or uh, Asia or, um, uh, you know, Australia or United States already would have some impact.
0: And last question is just for anyone listening that's intrigued about what you're doing, who do you want to hear from? And how can people be helpful to you. It could be open jobs, could be certain types of partnerships you're looking for or expertise. Just, just a, a quick chance to shout out anything you want to call attention to or any type of inbound you want to foster.
1: We're hiring a lot of people. We're doing something uh, revolutionary, of course, uh, for the industry and the world. Uh, so we're looking for great engineers, and also there are a number of openings on the business side as well. Uh, you can go to ZeroAvia.com and uh, see uh, most of our openings are published. You can uh, check out our LinkedIn page uh, as well for uh, ZeroAvia and see, uh, see what we have there. On the partnership side, we are looking uh, to uh, partner with forward-looking airlines that wants to help us lead the transformation to uh, zero emission in a scalable way. So we'd like to hear from the operators, regional and beyond.
0: Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners?
1: No, I think you're uh, pretty thorough. Uh, appreciate the questions. And for the listeners, really hope we were able to deliver part of that message that this transformation is real. It will come sooner than a lot expect, as there will be commercial flights on zero emission aircraft this decade. Well, what a
0: great point to end on. So Val, thanks so much for coming on the show, for the important work that you're doing. And best of luck to you and the Zero Avia team.
1: Thanks, Jason. Great to be with you.
0: Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. dot co. No, Note that is dot co, not dot com. Someday we'll get the com, but right now dot co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.